Amen. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you that you are here ahead of us, and we pray that you would indeed uh, be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to repeat two things from last week, and that is that all of the views that we will be discussing tonight can be and are held by Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. Now, as we said last week, there are legitimate reasons to disagree, and that is okay. Uh, the Lord has not answered every single question along these lines. In fact, a principle I remember during the week that uh, one of my theology professors told me in uh, seminary is that God did not write the Bible to answer all our questions. The Bible is a book of answers, but the Lord did not give us the Bible to answer all of our questions. And now, he did, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, give us the Bible so that we would have everything we need for life and godliness. Amen? And I think that what the reason why we're doing this is outlined by Paul in Romans 15:4 when he said whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction to give us teaching that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope and remember I told you, Romans 15.4 is, in my opinion, the most important verse in interpreting Revelation, Daniel, any of the passages that you want to talk about. It was written to give you and me encouragement, endurance, and hope. So that is what we're doing tonight. Now, as I said, tonight we are going to go through uh, the different, uh, the three, four, major uh, forms of eschatology uh, that are held again by Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. So what I want to do at the beginning is just quickly introduce them. And so our first slide, we're going to see post-millennialism. Now, is that at all legible to you guys? Okay, I hope so. Uh, but I'll, I'll, can you see the little wavy laser? Okay, good. So what we have is in each of these charts, we're going to, time begins in the Old Testament era, which of course it does because Adam is in the Old Testament era. And we're not getting really super particular about what's going on in each of them. But we find that we have the cross. And each of them, each of these has the cross. Now remember, post-millennialism, we talked last week, post meaning after millennium, thousand years, they believe, excuse me, that Christ will come after the first, after the thousand years of the millennium. So according to Matthew 12, 28, uh, the post-millennialists believe that at the cross, Satan was bound. Satan bound, or Jesus, excuse me, bound Satan and he was uh, and this little dotted line kind of goes underneath, so to speak. And according to the postmillennialists, the Satan being bound means that he is unable to deceive the nations. In other words, he is unable to stop the progression of the church. This squiggly line right here indicates that some time has passed. 
And then we have this kind of up and down line that indicates that the gospel is progressively, with some setbacks, growing and growing. And eventually, at some point, which we may or may not know, will kind of take over. That doesn't mean that everybody in the world will all of a sudden become Christian, but it will become predominantly Christian. Then at some point, Satan will be loosed, and at that point, he will deceive the nations again, and there will be a great apostasy followed by Christ returning. When Christ returns to the earth, he will set up his uh, judgment, he will judge the nations, and we will enter into the eternal state. What's important to catch here is two things. The first one is this general growth of gospel prosperity that kind of progresses through history and the church becomes more and more exultant and, and eventually uh, the gospel wins, so to speak. And then after Christ's return, we enter into the eternal state. Now I'm just giving you kind of nutshell version of this and I'm going to give you a little bit more here in a few minutes. So hang in there. Let's look at Amil now. Similarly, millennialism, we're talking about the thousand years where Christ is reigning. But they have the prefix a or ah and that indicates that there is not a millennium per se on the earth. Now uh, many amillennialists don't like the term amillennialism because it's negative. And so uh, following, oh, his name just fell out of my head. Uh, following one of the guys from the middle of the last century, uh, they call themselves realized eschatology or realized millennialism. In other words, well, here, let me say what that is here in just a second. But again, we have the Old Testament prophetic area. We have cross, uh, and again, they look to Matthew 12, 28. Uh, Jesus uh, binds Satan, and he is no longer able to uh, deceive the nations, and he kind of is under the underground, so to speak. Now, what the amillennialists, there's, there's kind of two camps, but the one that I think is ascendant right now is the camp that believes that the saints are reigning with Christ right now in the intermediate state. What does that mean? Everybody who has died in Christ since the cross is in what theologians, and this is all theologians as far as I know, uh, what theologians call the intermediate state. In other words, they're, they're in their, they don't have their bodies right now, and they are unclothed according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but they are with Christ uh, you remember the thief on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you surely this day you shall be with me in paradise. Uh, that's, we take that as indicating this intermediate state. And the amillennialists take that as the time uh, that, he, that they are reigning. And so they take, like the postmillennialists, they take the millennium, the thousand years in Revelation 20, as a long time. Uh, their argument is 1,000 years is 10 to the third power, which if you kind of do biblical math, um, I'm kind of indifferent on that subject. I think it's, anyways, uh, 10 to the third power, uh, that's 1,000 years. And so it, it's, it's figurative. And it, it just means a long 
period of time. And so the fact that it's been roughly 2,000 years isn't really a problem uh, for this view. Satan is loosed. Again, we have a time of serious decline that happens in the world because Satan is now deceiving the nations again. And we enter into these last days. At uh, these last days, uh, some amillennialists talk about the Great Tribulation as, uh-oh. Okay, forget that. Uh, they, they talk about the Great Tribulation where uh, Satan is loosed and um, we have big problems. But Christ raptures his church, resurrects the believers, and we join him. And at that point, uh, he... Uh, judges the nations, and again we enter into the eternal state. I really want to stress this point here uh, because you're going to notice when we uh, get to the premill, the two different premill interpretations, this eternal state is heaven. So, strictly speaking, when we, when one of our loved ones pass away, we don't believe that they actually go to heaven. They go to what this is called the intermediate state. Now they're with Christ. They are exceedingly happy. They are not in pain anymore. And, and Paul says to be with Christ is preferable to, you know, the greatest riches we can have on earth. But strictly speaking, the eternal state is really what we call heaven. If you struggle with that at all, see me afterwards uh, and we'll talk about it. And if you struggle with it, just forget I said it and we, and we won't worry about it. Um, but, but, but what I said is what Bible-believing, Christ-honoring theologians uh, all throughout the church history have, have said. But I, again, I want to emphasize this idea that at Christ's return, there is a judgment the church is resurrected. The dead outside of Christ are resurrected. We have the great judgment and we enter immediately into the intermediate state. So you see the post-millennialists and the amillennialists view this really similarly. In fact, a lot of amillennialists kind of consider themselves post-millennialists and post-millennialists kind of consider themselves amillennialists and it kind of uh, goes back and forth. In fact, uh, the, the book that Pastor Benji recommended I read on amillennialism, he has a chapter, I haven't read it yet, but he has a chapter on there on post-millennial interpretation, and I thought, hmm, uh, because they are so similar. There are some differences. There are some differences, but they are very similar. But now, we're, we're going to take kind of a, a step. We're getting away from post-mill and amill, and we're getting to pre-mill. And the first pre-mill is probably the one that's most familiar to those of you in this room, and it's called dispensational premillennialism. And on this, again, we have the prophetic era, the Old Testament, we have Christ returns, and then we have this uh, mystery age, we, where um, if you read Lewis Berry Chafer, he called it the incultation of the church being set in between uh, what should have been immediately a Jewish kingdom, but the Jews refused Christ's kingdom. 
Now, as a side note, and I really must be fair about this, but being fair makes it more complicated. So, again, <laughs> if what I'm about to say doesn't make sense, ask George next week. Um, <laughs> there, there really are three flavors of dispensationalists. And this one was, this chart was written by an amillennialist, so he picked the, the most heinous form of dispensationalism, which is the old traditional kind. There's been a kind of couple of versions since then, and I was reading uh, my progressive dispensationalists, which are the guys from 1980 to 1990s, um, and I was really finding myself agreeing with a lot of what they said, uh, which was interesting to me. But th those guys wouldn't include the idea of mystery era. They would just say it's the church age. They would say it's the age of grace. And uh, the, some of what we'll talk about next week and in three weeks, they, they would not hold to. Then we get to this last day's decline. Uh, we find out according to dispensationalism, that he who is holding them back is removed. And at this removal, we have what's called the Great Tribulation. And that removal is what, they, what is known as the rapture. Now, what we have to understand about this is that uh, the rapture, the catching up of those who are in Christ and who are alive at the time of Christ, is just that. We are talking just like now, Christ blows the trumpet of God at the voice of the archangel, and poof, we're gone. Now, at that same time, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that he will also resurrect those who are dead in Christ. Those who are in this intermediate state right now will receive back their bodies. All of this happens all at once. We then enter into this seven-year period of time, which is called the Great Tribulation for those who are on earth. For us, it's the wedding, um, um, the wedding uh, feast of the Lamb. And so we will be having a great big party up uh, somewhere. <laughs> then, after those seven years, or three and a half years, depending on who you're talking to, and I'm, I won't get into that right now, uh, Christ finishes coming down, and at that point, he will judge the nations. Now, when he judges the nations, what he's doing is he's setting up what's called the millennium. And the millennium is a period of time in which there are flesh and blood people, just like you and me are right now. And we will be, they will be joined by us, those who are in Christ, and we will receive our glorified bodies, and we will rule with Christ for this period of a thousand years. Every uh, premillennialist that I've read takes that to be literally 1,000 years. Now, George Ladd, who's a historic premillennialist like I am, he, he at one point, he makes a, a comment where he says, you know, we think this is a literal 1,000 years, but, you know, it could be that 1,000 years is figurative and maybe we'll be here for 1,500 years. Who knows? But uh, the, the ah-mill and the post-mill take it completely figuratively and the pre-mill guys, for the most part, take it quite literally, meaning it's going to be a literal 1,000 years. So, at, this, at the setting up of the millennium, 
Christ binds Satan. And this key phrase is so that he may no longer deceive the nations. Uh, again, Matthew 12, 28. So he it binds Satan. Satan is not allowed to deceive anybody anymore. And Christ sets up a perfect rule. This lasts for approximately a thousand years. Satan is loosed. There will be many who will join Satan's cause. Ultimately, they will fail. And at that point, uh, the great white throne judgment will happen. And we will be, in, uh, all believers at that point, will, well, everybody will be ushered into the eternal state, heaven or hell. Oh, I guess I should say this. We at Grace believe that there is a literal hell and there is a literal heaven. There is a conscience eternal torment for those who are outside of Christ and there is a conscience eternal bliss for those who are in Christ. And, and again, bear with me. If, if, if I'm not explaining it, let me know. In fact, let me know right now. If I'm not explaining this right well enough to you, those who die apart from Christ right now go into eternal conscious punishment. That's not strictly hell, so to speak. That doesn't come until the eternal state. They're still going to be judged, well, if you're a premillennialist, they're still going to be judged in the future and at that point. And those who die in Christ are entering into eternal conscious bliss, even though heaven doesn't come until the final judgment. I just want to know, are there any questions? Do, am I explaining myself well enough? Any questions on that? Okay. Let's go to historic premillennialism. Um, again, we have the Old Testament prophetic area, Christ, church age. And here, uh, this is an interesting aspect of historic premill. It says pre-kingdom era. Christ came and he gave us numerous blessings. Uh, one of which Paul talks about is sanctification. And sanctification is this process by which we are made more and more like Christ. Okay? Now, Paul can talk about sanctification as if it's in the past tense. In other words, he sometimes talks about us becoming like Christ. You are like Christ. And he's talking in this way of manner of speaking that, that theologians have called already, but not yet. We are already like Christ, and we are growing, Lord willing, uh, like Christ. So it's already true of us, and it's not quite fully there yet. And so when they talks about the pre-kingdom era, he's referring to one day we will be in the millennium when that will be completely true. Church age, last days decline, great tribulation, and unlike the uh, dispensational premillennialists, the, for the most part, historic premillennialists are what are called post-trib raptures. We believe for the most part that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation and we don't separate the difference between uh, Christ's rapture of the church, seven or three and a half years, seven years depending on who you're reading, and his final coming down uh, to judge the world and set up his kingdom. 
in the millennium, then Satan once again will be bound. The millennial kingdom will happen. We will reign with Christ on the earth. Uh, we meaning those who are dead in Christ and those who are raptured um, at, at that moment. At the end, once again, Satan is loosed. He leads many astray. They are then judged and we end up uh, in the millennial uh, or excuse me, we end up in the eternal state. Now, the most important thing uh, that we have to discuss is this. Ne Next slide. Oh, how did my little girl get in there? I don't know. <laughs> Shocking. Sorry about that. Yes, I can show you pictures, but we can't post pictures. Sorry. But yeah, that, that is pastoral uh, prerogative. Okay, go ahead, next slide. I want to I, I wanna emphasize um, two things about dispensationalism that uh, we'll find out more about next week. But I want you to see when we're talking about dispensationalism, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this quickly because I'm not going to stay here. Most dispensationalists say that there's three or seven, excuse me, seven dispensations. And each one of them, God gave the people a responsibility. He gave them a very specific command, which they failed to complete. Okay? And at their failure to complete this specific command, he gave a judgment. So, for example, um, we have the Tower of Babel was one of the judgments. Uh, the fact that they went to Egypt for 430 years was a judgment. The fact um, that the, the uh, tribulation will be one of these judgments. But this next chart shows uh, another way of looking at it. And uh, there's the first one, the dispensation of innocence that ended when God judged Adam and Eve. If you guys want these slides, just tell me and I'll get you the slides so you don't have to take pictures of them. Um, uh, that, that ended when God kicked them out of the uh, Garden of Eden. And then each of the successive dispensations then build on each other. If you can imagine, it's, it's kind of like blocks going up and even though we are in the, the age of grace, that block is just built upon the ones underneath it. Uh, go ahead and flip to the next slide. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is kind of a same diagram that's showing the one before. Like I said, if you, if you want these, let me know and I'll, I'll get them to you. But the key one that I want you to stay on is this one here. So, uh, as, as I look at Scripture, and as I look at how the Bible holds together, I think the, the way that makes the most sense to me is that there's four key ideas that, uh, that are central to understanding the gospel narrative throughout the Bible. And the first one is creation. God created the heavens and the earth, period. That's 
That's the truth. And that is the foundation upon which everything else is built, no matter what system of theology that you look at, as long as it's Christian theology. Then, of course, was there a question? Then, of course, we have the fall. And it's uh, the person who drew this is picking on the, the golden calf uh, in the wilderness, which I thought he did a really good job. Obviously, at the fall, Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate exactly doing what God told them not to do. And because they did it, they were kicked out of the Eden and all kinds, pardon the expression, but at that moment all hell broke loose and we have what we have now. But God would not leave the story there. Amen? Amen. 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 God would not leave the story there. Redemption is the power of God rescuing us out of our sin. You and I were sold under slavery to sin that we could not break. I was reading uh, this afternoon while I was getting ready for tonight and the person who wrote it said, it is not your power. It is not, now I'm, elaborating. It's not your goodness. It's not anything that you have that will enable you to overcome your sin. It is the power of God coming and redemption is a point in time fact. Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave. Amen. And it is something we live as we experience him working in us and through us to make us like him. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. After redemption comes restoration. One day Christ will come and all Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people believe that God will come, he will visit us, and he will usher us one day into his presence forever where we will not only have victory over the, the penalty of sin, not only will we have ultimate victory over the power of sin, but we will have victory over the presence of sin for all eternity. This is the story of the Bible. This is God visiting us and um, giving us grace. Oh my goodness, that took a lot longer than I thought. Okay. Oh, I've got a whole nother lecture here. Um, you know what? What I'm going to do is I'm going to begin now, and because there's some of the stuff I really want to, and, and we'll make it work later on. I want to go back to the idea of post-millennialism. Because I, I really want to emphasize that all four of these views are, are held by Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. Uh, you need to understand, you can disagree with the post-millennialists. I do. I disagree with post-millennialism. But you, you, there's some aspects of it you need to respect. Um, the first point about postmillennialism is that the Great Commission leads us to expect that the gospel will go forth in power and eventually result in a largely Christian world. Postmillennialists put 
faith in the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now tell me that's a bad thing. Right? That is not a bad thing. We should. In fact, I think one of the problems that the church has had throughout the centuries is we haven't put enough faith in the power of God through the good news of Jesus Christ to make real change in people. And I would say that that's been true of even in the American church. We have failed in thinking that we couldn't make lasting change. And we've, we've kind of fallen into a pessimistic idea of the world when in fact, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Of course, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is you're saying, you're assuming that because Jesus issues the command that it's going to happen. That's not necessarily true. Secondly, the other both good and bad thing is if you go to Matthew chapter 13, what you'll find are the parables of the kingdom. And in the parables of the kingdom, one of the themes that you get in these parables is that the kingdom grows. And it even grows slowly. It grows imperceptibly. It grows in such a way that we're not even really sure how it does. One example is the woman puts leaven in a batch of dough. And what do you get? You get bread, right? Well, back then, they had no idea how that happened. They just knew it did. And, and that's kind of this idea of the growth of the kingdom. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with the idea that Matthew chapter 13 means that the church is going to ultimately be victorious is you're, you're making a lot of assumptions here. Jesus does not say in Matthew 13 that ultimately everyone or a vast majority of the people are going to be Christians. In other words, it's these assumptions that are going on. The, the post-millennialists, if you read about them today, uh, yes, there are post-millennials today and they have their websites. Uh, one of their points that they make is that the world is becoming more Christian. Don't laugh. This is serious. If you look in the third world, there are more Christians than there are in the United States. That should shame us. We who have seminaries, we who have nice, comfortable churches to come and sit in, and people who are in mud huts and out in the field are becoming more Christian than we are. And by the way, you try telling some Syrian Christians right now that they are not in the Great Tribulation. You try going to some places in Africa and you tell those Christians that we're not in the Great Tribulation. I'm going to get back to that point in three weeks or whatever it is now about, hmm, interesting thought. Uh, Rob, Robert Peterson, who is an amillennialist at Covenant, Covenant Theological Seminary, he says uh, of the post-millennialists, oh, I'm sorry, I missed the second point. To that point, the world is becoming more Christian. Well, it's also becoming more evil. In other words, it's hard to look at the United States and think, oh, it's becoming more Christian. I, I would struggle trying to make that argument, right? 
it's also becoming more evil. We're getting more people with more guns and more bombs who are doing some absolutely horrific things. And so if you're going to balance the world is becoming more Christian, which there's evidence that that's true, you also have to balance that Well, the world is also becoming more evil. Uh, as I said, Robert Peterson said, there is a laudable Christian optimism because of the gospel. And I, I think we would do well in whichever vein you've consider yourself to fall into to say the same thing. There is some good, laudable uh, optimism. But I think there are at least two passages, and I, I weeded out a bunch of other ones that uh, seem to deny the post-millennialist position. Uh, the first one is Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, it, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I don't see in those two verses uh, an idea that the world is going to be progressively more and more Christian, that there's going to come a point where the world is predominantly Christian. I, I, I don't see that there. And Luke 18, 8, um, depending on your view, could be taken one of a couple of ways, but uh, I think it says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Even as we saw in all four of our diagrams, we saw a sliding off because Satan was loosed or just because bad things are happening. Even with that, I think in the post-millennial view, you, you should still have a lot of people who are Christians. And, and Christ is making a point here uh, specifically about prayer, and context does matter. But uh, is he going to find faith on the earth? Well, evidently the idea seems to be negative. So why do I thank God for postmillennialists? I thank God because they take the good news seriously and they take responsibility as a Christian seriously. And that is something that we must do. Why am I not a post-millennialist? Because scriptural evidence is simply not there. And though the world is becoming more Christian, it is also becoming less Christian at the same time. Okay. I am going to resist the temptation. Talking about amillennialism is going to take a lot more than 10 minutes. So I'm going to pray for us, and we will come back, and we'll talk about in two weeks uh, amillennialism and premillennialism. And uh, I got carried away. Sorry about that. Let's, let's take a moment and pray, however. Lord Almighty, we do once again come before you, and we recognize that you are the great God who loves us and will never leave us or forsake us. And I thank you once again that you have given us much knowledge. And I ask Jesus that you would indeed meet us where we are so that we can be the men and women of God that you have created us to be uh, for your glory. Uh, and Lord, we worship you. Lord, let us be men and women who have a laudable optimism because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And let us not fall into pessimism and, and fear if we are 
to face difficult days in this country, I pray that we would do so knowing that you are with us and that you have never, never let your people down. And though your people have gone through great tribulations in the past, Lord, you will be with us. You will strengthen us. You will give us the faith and the courage we need. Let us now rejoice in that so that we will have endurance, so that we will have hope and Lord, we call upon you to give us the, what you have promised to do for us even as we go about our lives this day. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.